Good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you want to start turning to Exodus 20, verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4. If you're a visitor here this morning, once again, welcome. Uh, as, as, as I said earlier, we have a reduced crowd here. Uh, it was great being at Cornerstone yesterday. It actually started on Friday, but we've been on holiday for a week. Uh, it was great being with the Cornerstone guys yesterday, our 70 to 30s uh, worship weekend. Um, uh, in fact, Charlotte and the kids are still there now. Uh, they're having a great time, obviously. Um, they're having a, a God speaking to them personally, being equipped and strengthened. Great times of prayer over the weekend. Marvash spoke, Simon spoke yesterday, I spoke last night. Um, and really, it was a great time of praying for one another. It was also a great time of them being knitted together um, in terms of friendship and growing in the vision for the church. As the Apostle Paul prays out uh, the ch- uh, to the church in Ephesus, we really prayed out this for them last night, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which Jesus has called them and the riches of his glorious inheritance. And they really, really rose to that. So please do pray for these guys. When they get back, encourage them, ask them, ask them about it. Uh, ask them what God said. Um, so really do pray for them and encourage them. So the week before last, uh, I opened up our new sermon series uh, on the Ten Commandments and why they are still relevant today. How are these ten promises, if we, uh, as if you remember from last week, these ten promises um, uh, from God were to make us holy right from the inside, empowered by God the Holy Spirit, our holy and holiness expert living inside of, inside of us. That Christianity, we said last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, isn't a set of rules and regulations that God uses to knock us over the head with or a set of do-its to get us a passage into heaven, but rather he is a God of irresistible grace, remember that, who sets the right boundaries so that we might find real freedom and joy and adventure in him. If uh, If you think about it in our culture today, who in their right mind would take these principles of the Ten Commandments written centuries ago so seriously. Haven't we moved on? That's what a lot of people would say. Haven't we become more sophisticated? Uh, come on, why do a sermon on the, a sermon series on the Ten Commandments? Why? Why? Because the Bible is God's breathed eternal truth. And it's always relevant. It's always life-giving. It's always right. It's always transforming. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never, ever pass away. These these 10 commandments over the next 10 10 weeks or so will challenge us. They will. They'll offend us, redirect us, but ultimately... If we humbly submit ourselves to his rule and reign in our lives, they will shape us, they will grow us, they will mold us. That's why we're going to be looking at them over the next few weeks. Are you up for that? So this week we're going to be looking at the second of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Simon unpacked 
commandment one for us last week. I haven't heard that on the podcast yet. Uh, in a way, these first four commandments all merge into one, if you like, as they're, as they're about our relationship with God, with our creator God. They're about him, who he is, how we relate to him. And so this week, we're going to open up the whole area, as the second of the Ten Commandments talks about, the whole area of idolatry. So what is this? What is idolatry? Worshipping idols. Worshipping something other than God. Worshipping something other than God. Anything else? Putting something on a pedestal other than God. Okay. So we're going to be looking at what idolatry is. How does it affect us? Is it still relevant today? Do we really worship idols? How do we spot what these idols are? And how does Jesus tell us to deal with them? So that's where we're going to be going briefly this morning. So let's read Exodus 24, shall we? Exodus 24. And God spoke all these words. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that your word is eternal. I thank you, Lord, that your word touches our hearts, shapes us, molds us. And I pray, Lord God, as, uh, as I bring this word this morning, that people and me will be shaped by uh, your, 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 your God-given commandments, your God-given uh, promises. And I pray, Spirit of God, come and touch us this morning. Help us to be the holy people that you have called us to be. Help us to be more and more pure in your sight, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus died for us and, for us and that we are hidden in the purity of Christ, the wonder of Christ. But I pray, Lord God, that you will change us and transform us more and more into his likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's idolatry? Well, looking it up in the dictionary, it says this, idolatry is the excessive or blind adoration, reverence or devotion to an image or other material object representing God. That's, a, that's quite a profound definition if you really think about it. Basically, it's saying in a secular dictionary, it's, the issue, it's an issue of worship. See how the second commandment starts. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to, bow down to them or worship them. So question whom or what are you worshipping, really? In fact, let's go deeper. What's worship all about? 
Well, the biblical understanding of worship is this. Worship is the act of ascribing, placing, giving absolute, ultimate value to God, to Jesus, in a way that energizes and brings alive your whole person, your entire being. That's what, uh, Christian, that's what the Christian understanding of worship is all about. Worship of Jesus engages us, you and me, in everything. It engages everything about us, everything in us. Our minds, our actions, our emotions, everything. Worship changes us. Jesus exhorted us in Luke 10 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your mind. Everything you have, worship. You see, we live in a world, don't we, that thinks we either worship, therefore we're religious, or we don't, and therefore we're not. But that is too, is just too simple. Because in, in reality, we are all worshipping something. Did you know that? If you're not a Christian here this morning, or you don't believe in God, you might, you might actually not agree with that. You might think, hold on, Raj, I'm not religious. I don't worship anything at all. Wrong. Why? Because whether you believe in God or not, you're already ascribing, placing, giving absolute ultimate value to something, someone. Your whole life is already orientated, controlled by something. It just is. Idols, idolatry is everywhere. So what do I mean? What are the gods of today that the second commandment says we still bow down to and worship and warns us about? Well, I guess they're the things uh, that are so central and essential to your life, my life, that should we lose them, uh, should we lose them, our life would feel hardly worth living. We'd become somber. We'd be in despair. They're the things that have such a controlling position in your heart that in the end you spend most of your passion and energy, your money and emotional resources on them without thinking twice about it. It can be your family your career, your kids making money. It can be achievement, how others see you maybe. Romance, hobbies, approval, comfort, beauty, brains, a great moral cause even, success, power, you name it. These are the gods of today. These are the gods that we sacrifice our lives to every day. Often good things, that list is full of good things, worthy things. But when they become the ultimate thing, before and above God, they become Id the idols that God is warning us about in this commandment. Uh, a writer, Rebecca Pippet, Becky Pippet, writes in one of her books, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. Jonathan's smiling because he recognizes the Keller quote. The person who speaks, seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. So that's idolatry. That's 21st century, if you like, uh, idol worshipping. 
It might not be ten-handed God, uh, ten-handed statues of gods. It might be not. It might not be the sun or the moon. But we all worship something or someone or even ourselves, whether we see ourselves as Christians or not. Our hearts are idol factories, churning these things out. Fact. So I'll ask you again: What are you worshiping? Really? So how do these, so secondly, how do these, how does idolatry, how do these idols of today, the idols of our heart affect us? Um, who likes Lord of the Rings? I know there's definitely one person here who really likes Lord of the Rings. I've seen it lots and lots of times. The central plot of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the dark, I'm not going to spoil it for you, it's been out for a while. I know I'm in the habit, I know I'm in the habit of spoiling films for you, so I gave it a few years before. The central plot of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power, which no matter who you are, or however good or bad your intentions are, corrupts you from within. A guy called Professor Tom Shipping, believe it or not, he's a British scholar of medievalism and a leading expert, if you can be this kind of thing, a leading expert in Tolkien's works, describes this ring, the ring, as a psychic amplifier which takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. Remember, my precious. Remember? Gollum. In the story, the good characters in the book want to do good things. They want to liberate slaves. They want to preserve their people's land or bring wrongdoers punishment. Good things. They, they, these are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything and everything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns all their hearts, greatest motives and longings into an absolute must-have that overturns all their other good values and morality or goodness. And as the movie progresses, we see that those who come by its way, the ring, uh, they become increasingly enslaved by it, obsessed by it. It corrupts and brings turmoil and tension, whether it's Frodo, Sam, Bilbo, Boromir, Gollum, addicted to it, because an, uh, an idol, idol is something that we cannot live without. So how do these idols affect us? Well, three ways, really. First of, firstly, we fall in love with them. In the Bible, very, very controversially, God is often referred to as our true spouse, our intimate lover. When we delight in other things more than Jesus, the Bible speaks of this as committing spiritual adultery. The Bible often uses very stark, harsh words about this. Jeremiah 3, 1 to, 20, uh, 1 to 2. But you, Israel, have lived as a whore with many lovers, declares the Lord. Isaiah 1, 21. See how the faithful city has become a whore. Ezekiel 16. But you, Israel, trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a whore. You lavished your whorings on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You didn't think I'd say those words that many times, did you? But the Bible's 
very strong, uses very strong words about spiritual adultery. Jubilee idols capture our imagination. We daydream about them. In short, we fall in love. We look to them to give us a sense of beauty, significance, and worth. But here, but hear what Exodus 20 says. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See the intimacy, see the closeness, see, see the exclusiveness of this relationship. That's the wonder of Christianity, isn't it? Where his bride, his beautiful bride, his lover, his all in all, Jesus is the proof of that commitment to us, isn't he? We fall in love with them. Secondly, we trust in them. We look to them for security and peace. They become our saviors. When they, when, they fall, when they fall or fail us, and they always do in the end, we become disillusioned by them. We feel betrayed and lost. They give us a sense of being in control. And, uh, and, and for that control, we make sacrifices to them. Our time, our kids, our money, our values, our attention, our joy, these are the idols that wake us up at night that bring fear and anxiety and worry. We look to them for confidence and safety. And thirdly, because we love them, because we trust them, you know what happens? We end up unceasingly serving them. They call us to obedience. They become our Lord and Master. We do anything and everything for them, however irrational that may seem. And in our service to them, we become uncontrollably angry, anxious, despondent when, su when serving them becomes a bottomless, never-ending, downward-spiraling pit. We can't break loose. And the problem is this. Although we love them as our lover, put our trust in them as our savior, and serve them as our Lord and Master, they never ever give anything back. They take, take, take. They bring devastation for generations. That's what this passage talks about. That's what we, that's what we see all around us, don't we? That's what we see through history. This passage says, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, says God. As Alexis de Tocqueville uh, recorded way back in the 1830s in his famous observations on America. He says, the incomplete joys of this world will never, ever, ever satisfy the human heart. So idols are what we worship. And we're all worshipping something. Also, our hearts are idol factories com uh, corrupting us from our very center as they call us to love them, trust them, and serve them with all our heart and soul and strength and mind above Jesus, our true God. So what do we do? How do we deal with the idolatry in our lives? Well, before we can do anything, we need to look deep. We need to be able to see what they really are because Anything and anyone can become, can be an idol. If you really look at your life, there's, they're all over the place. 
Uh, that's why it says here, anything in heaven or above the earth or beneath it or in the waters below, that's everything. Watch out, the Bible says. Be on guard. So how do we spot them? How do we see what they are? Well, I think a good start is to consider four things again. Firstly, look at your imagination. Uh, the former Archbishop, uh, um, former Archbishop William Temple once said, "Your religion is what you do. It is, uh, your religion is what you do with your solitude." What does he mean? What is he talking about? Well, he means that when you're on your own for hours and you have nothing to read or listen to, nothing to look at, when your mind isn't forced to think of anything else, where does it effortlessly go a lot of the time? Where does it love to dwell? Is it Jesus or your other gods? What do you continually get distracted by? Is it the dream career or the dream home or the dream partner? Is it being successful in church ministry uh, or, or other areas of ministry or areas of your life? Does God just get fitted in amongst all the other stuff? Is God really at the very center of those daydreams? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your own heart? Look at your imagination. Think about it. Secondly, we look at how. Uh, secondly, look at how you spend your money. Jesus warned us, in fact, throughout a whole lot of the Bibles about money um, and possessions. Jesus warned us in Matthew six nineteen: Do not store up uh, for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourself. But store up for yourselves treasure in. Heaven. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Jesus was right, wasn't he? Your money flows effortlessly towards your heart's greatest loves. Your wallet is where your heart reveals itself most accurately, as Driscoll often used to say. Where are you overspending? Where are you constantly struggling to exercise self-control in your finances? Is it clothing? Is it technology? Is it cars? Is it, is it your children? Our patterns of spending reveal to us our idols. Are you regularly, joyfully, sacrificially, generously giving to the purposes of God? Are you, are you being a good steward? Steward. As we come to the end of, our end of our financial year, we still have a 20K faith gap in this financial year's budgeting. 20K. Will you be able to help over the next few weeks to fill it? Can you? God is calling us to be a faith-filled people jubilee, all out for Jesus. How can you contribute over these coming weeks? Thirdly, so our imagination reveals our idols. How, do we, how we spend our money reveals our idols. Thirdly, this is particularly for those who are already Christians, how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? Is it, never mind, God knows, God's in charge, I'll trust him, meanwhile I'm going to move on? 
Or is it explosive anger at God? Or deep despair and despondency? What are the prayers and hopes that make you respond like that? That take your trust from God to other things? What are they? And fourthly, look at your most uncomfortable emotions. Sorry, look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Just as the Maasai hunter goes to where he sees the most animal tracks in the dirt, look for your idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions. Is it, is it the need not to be single? Is it the need to have kids and family? Is it their safety? Is it your wife or husband? Is it the poor? Is it the distress you see on TV? These things can be idols too. I'm not just talking about, and I'm not just talking about passing emotions. I'm talking about deep, painful emotions, fears, despair that never seems to move on, always haunts you. Those are the emotions when you pull them up by the roots reveal more of your idols underneath, the incomplete joys of this world. Our imagination reveals our idols. How we spend our money reveals our idols. Our frustrated hope and unanswered prayers reveal our idols. Our uncontrollable emotions, these are the things that reveal our idols. I would, I would, I would encourage you over the next few weeks, pray into these things. Ask God to reveal these things. The first step to dealing with our idols is seeing what they really are. Asking deep questions, being honest, getting uncomfortable, praying them through, asking God the Holy Spirit to reveal them more and more, especially the painful ones, even the ones that mean life must radically change, even the ones that might cause you internal conflict and battling. What are they? That's the first step. That's a big step. But then what? What's the answer? How do we deal with our idols? And this is the final bit. What do we do with them? Well, there's two options really, as I see it in the Bible. We either try, try, try to stop being controlled by them, master, muster up enough uh, willpower to try and live differently, do the right thing, repenting of our idols. Those are definitely important things to do. There's a part that, uh, that that plays. The Christian life is very much a, a matter of, uh, much, very much about obedience. It is, but that's not the main thing. That kind of effort won't last. You won't be able to keep it up. In fact, it puts you in control. You be then become the answer, possibly exaggerating one of the biggest idols of all, you. It's a vicious cycle, isn't it? No, Jesus gives us a very different way, a much better way. Jesus gives us a motivation to change that excels any other reason, a reason that will last, a reason that will take us, as the Bible says, from one degree of glory to another. Not overnight, over our years on this earth, through our joys and our trials, through the, through the people he calls us to be in fellowship with, through our failures and successes. What is it? Well, remember what we said right at the very beginning. The biblical understanding of worship is the act of ascribing, placing, giving absolute ultimate value to God, to Jesus, in a way that energizes and brings alive 
your whole person, your entire being. Worship. That's the answer. Only a beauty beyond all other beauties. That's what we've been praying, uh, singing about this morning. Only a beauty beyond all other beauties will change your heart. And only Jesus can fulfill that in you. This analogy might help. Imagine a woman who has inherited a brooch, a piece of jewelry, and fr from her grandmother, a family heirloom handed down through the generations. And now this woman has it. She doesn't really know what it's worth, where it came from. She doesn't know much about it, really. Most of the time, she's not even sure where she's put it. And one day, her daughter comes to visit, and she sees this thing and asks her mom, what's this, mom? And her mom says, oh, yeah, that old thing. It was your great-grandma's. Don't know much about it, really. And the daughter looks at it and says, mom, I think we should get it valued. And you know what? Next week, the Antiques Roadshow is coming to town. <laughs> Who watches that? Why don't we take it along? And so they take it with them. And at the Antique Roadshow, they hand this thing over to the professional jeweler. And, that, and the jeweler gets a, gets a little magnifying glass, just like that out, and starts examining it, starts studying it, starts checking it out in detail. And he's looking at the how the diamonds are cut and how it shines and glitters and the color of the diamond, the size, its clarity. And he looks carefully at it in detail. He goes over it again and again and suddenly after doing this for a few minutes uh, with his little magnifying glass thing, the magnifying glass pops out of his eye and he starts hyperventilating, and he starts feeling faint, and his heart starts racing. He's sweating, he's jumping up and, up and down. He's excited. Why? What's happened? After studying this thing again and again, he suddenly realizes that this thing he is holding is the most precious thing he's ever seen. He can't believe it. He can't stop his emotions. Why has he suddenly become excited? Why is he suddenly jumping up and down on British TV? Why is his mind, will, and emotions suddenly, uh, suddenly engaged? Because he realizes the value of what he has in his hands. He realizes that what he has in his hands is more valuable than all the jewels that he has ever had before and he's ever come across before. That jubilee is the answer. The beauty of the pearl of great price. Oh, Jesus. Get it? That's what worship is. The cross is God's love in action. Real, sacrificial, all-out love to me and you. His bride, his beautiful, precious bride. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Let's end with this. It's a part of a book, part of a book called The Whisper Test. It's about a lady called Mary Ann Bird who was born with multiple severe birth defects. Hear this, this is what it says. The whisper test. I, Mary Ann Bird, grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. 
I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmate, classmates made it clear to me how, how I looked, uh, made it clear to me how I looked uh, to others, different. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me because of this. There was, however, a teacher in second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was a short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually at the school, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at the desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Jubilee, love changes everything. Love whispers, I choose you. Love replaces the ideal idols of our heart. And get this, for all of us, all of us, everyone with misshapen spirits and crooked hearts and lopsided souls and garbled motivation, this, this, this beautiful Jesus, this love changes everything. On the cross, Jesus says, I love you. I choose you. I want you to be my little girl, my little boy. And I'll do anything to make that happen, whatever the cost. He's done it already, hasn't he? It is finished. What changes everything? What motivates us to give? Uh, what motivates us to live this life? What breaks down the idols of our heart? Jubilee, love does, love does, love does. His love, the pearl of great price. Let's stand if the band could come up. We're just going to respond in worship. We're just going to respond in worship to this beautiful God, the pearl of great price, the one who is above all other gods, the one who our worship, the one who deserves our absolute exclusive worship, the one who's a jealous God and is all out for this relationship, life-giving, loving relationship with us, our bride. Let's worship, and we're going to end there, but as we're worshiping, I just want you to ask God to, over the coming weeks to reveal your idols. Reveal your idols, the painful ones, the difficult ones. Let's worship.